Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, there is rich perspective we can gain in understanding how you fulfill time and how your promises are connected to time and how your time schedule fits into the overarching issues of this day, this hour, globally and yet personally. Father, in these minutes together, what we want to do is to explore the breadth and the depth of your word and see how this passage of Scripture relates to other passages of Scripture and to see how this passage of Scripture relates to lives today globally and how it connects to what we're facing personally. So, Father, in these minutes together, what we are praying once again is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Watching a news analysis in the past few weeks, I was interested in hearing the thought perspectives of Dr. Charles Krauthammer. Dr. Krauthammer has his MD from Harvard. He's a psychiatrist. He was paralyzed in a swimming accident years ago from the waist down. He is an astute analyst of what's happening globally and politically and has a tremendous understanding of all matters, it seems, as to the way in which things connect together. And to top it off, interestingly enough, he's Jewish. And so after the turbulence in the last weeks in Turkey, I was curious of Dr. Krauthammer's take on it. I have my own. And so as he was being asked questions about what was happening, he said, What we have to do is to begin to connect together what has taken place in times past in Egypt, in Libya, and connect them to what is happening now in Turkey, and to understand that politically speaking, there is a global stirring, which is occurring. He pauses and then adds, it has something to do with Israel. Now, I typically take notes whenever I have the opportunity to watch news late at night. And when I heard him use the words stirring and spoke of Israel... I knew that there was something here embedded in these verses that needed to be expounded. Because what I'd love for you to do is to circle the word stirred in verse 1, where in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And then I'd love for you to draw a line down to verse 5 and circle the word stirred, where we read, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You will notice that the word stirred is used twice to describe what God is doing. Furthermore, the word Jerusalem is used again and again and again in these verses. So what I want to do is to now connect with you the dots to understand two significant stirrings which are described in these verses and to understand how this relates to what might be happening in 2016 globally and at the same time how to decipher what happens when God disrupts things in your life personally. We're dealing here with the sovereignty of God. So the first flows now out of verses 1 through 4, this first significant stirring. And we're going to phrase it like this, number one, that through his word, through his word, God stirs up the rulers of this world to fulfill his promises. God stirs up the rulers of this world fulfill his promises. What seizes your attention at the very onset in verse 1 is that this is the first year of Cyrus. Now, ask yourself the question, why is that so significant? You might remember that when we studied the book of Daniel last year, we reached a point where Belshazzar, the leader of the Babylonians, is having a party. They're having a wine party. And they're using the utensils that have been confiscated from the temple of Jerusalem to toast the false gods of Babylon, weren't they? All of a sudden, we're paraphrasing now. The handwriting appears on the wall. And God is saying to Belshazzar and his kingdom, your days are numbered. Somebody's coming in to take over. And that very night, that very night, the people on the streets of Babylon welcomed in Cyrus's forces who would now conquer the Babylonians. Now, Cyrus and his forces, the Persians, modern-day Iran, generally speaking, conquering the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq, generally speaking. This is the first of the non-Semitic leaders to take over. Do you remember the story in Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of these four kingdoms of succession? Well, here come the Persians to be followed by the Greeks, to be followed by the Romans. And now the non-Semitic leadership begins their conquest of the terrain. Here is Cyrus now, and he has been welcomed unto the streets of Babylon. But this is no accident in time. 
This is an appointment with time. When God is producing stirrings globally, regionally, personally, take a step back and assess carefully. When God is at work, this is not an accident in time. This is an appointment with time. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, I want you to now notice very carefully what comes next. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. I want you to see the direct relationship globally, and yet at the same time ponder this personally regarding how when there is a stirring and it relates to the Word of God, stirrings have got to be connected to the promise of God. Now you ask yourself, well, where is this coming from when it says here that the Word of the Lord might be fulfilled by the mouth of Jeremiah? Well, if you and I were to make our way to what now appears on the screen and in Jeremiah chapter 25, what you would find is that this 7th century prophet by the name of Jeremiah predicted this. That after 70 years of Jewish captivity, the Israelites would be freed from their captors and return to their homeland. Notice how it reads. This whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seven D years. Then after 70 years are completed of time fulfilled, you see, I will punish the king of Babylon. Think Belshazzar and toasting the false gods of Babylon. And that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I'll bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. And now what you find here is that God of time fulfilled makes certain that the trains are on time here. And so he stirs at the strategic moment, Cyrus, to make a proclamation to have these people return to their homelands. Now, God is not limited in his sovereignty to simply work exclusively with believers. God can work with unbelievers to fulfill purposes for believers. For example, God, in Pharaoh's mindset, raised up a Joseph to become second in command within the land of Egypt, as described in the book of Genesis, so that Joseph's kin, who would be the tribes of Israel, would arrive in Egypt And they would grow and they would multiply to the point where God would say, let my people 
go. But it was Pharaoh who positioned Joseph in that land. If you were to read the book of Esther, which we'll get to next year at some point, Lord willing, there would be this leader by the name of Ahasuerus who had raised up this majestic, classy woman named Esther. She would be positioned in such a way to protect and preserve the Jewish race, out of which will come Jesus Christ, Messiah. If you make your way to the New Testament, you will find that there's a Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, who is so stirred that a strategic moment in time issues an edict whereby all the people in the Roman Empire are to return to their towns to register. And now come a Joseph and Mary. Caesar Augustus, not a believer, but so moved to fulfill the promise in Micah with regard to this one to be born in Bethlehem. He issues this global edict, and now everybody is moving in various directions, but God is orchestrating all the pieces, you see, because he multitasks, and he does it very well, I want you to know. And he gets Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. And in the fulfillment of time, not born prematurely, but after fully registered, documented, In Bethlehem, Jesus is born. And maybe Pontius Pilate and Herod think that they're in charge when it comes to this matter of what has taken place in Jerusalem. But then Peter puts it in proper perspective. For truly in this city, in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. God anointed them. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. you begin to connect all this. And you realize that what God is doing is that he is sovereignly superintending his plan among his people, even drawing in unbelievers to be part of the strategic strategy to make things happen. So we nod our heads in approval, don't we, when we, when we examine what is written in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, which is tremendously significant for this political season approaching in November, where what God says holds true today. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so now, God has all of a sudden stirred the mindset, the spirit, the soul of Cyrus. In the timely manner in which Cyrus has appeared on the scene of the streets of Babylon, having conquered the Babylonians, 
he now issues this proclamation. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now what God is doing at this point is that he is orchestrating events. Because at that very point in time, you see, Daniel had been praying. And in the book of Daniel, in chapter 9 and verse 2, what he was doing was praying the promises of God back to God. Because in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord and to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And this can be made personal as well. You see, I remember years ago when my pastor, when I attended the Moody Church, Warren Wearsby, who would later become a professor of mine, recalled an experience he had with a man who had walked with the Lord through many years and now was at a point where his health was declining and his memory was fading and said to Dr. Wearsby, Pastor, I'm having a hard time now remembering the promises of God. I've always relied upon them in hard times. And Warren, who's one of the wisest men I've ever had the privilege to spend time with, said in response, My dear friend, what is most important is not that you remember the promise of God but that you rely upon the one who keeps the promise. And when hard times come and all of a sudden you can't quite apply that particular promise to the situation because things are just happening so fast. If you can't get each and every phrase right in the promise, remember, when you cannot remember the promise of God, you can still rely upon the one who keeps the promise. All of that comes, you see, out of verse 1. And we're still in verse 1. Going so slow. So my track coach used to say to me, Highlander, you are so slow. Well, to help this along, let's get to verses 2 and 3. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. This is interesting. And he has charged me to build him a house. Notice this now. Circle it. At Jerusalem, which is where? In Judah. Keep reading. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up where? to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, we've been talking about the ability to rely upon the God who keeps the promise. But I want you to help, to help you remember the promise that you can rely upon 
and you will find a passage of Scripture that now appears on the screen in Isaiah chapter 44. And now an 8th century B.C. prophet, long before Cyrus appeared on the scene, this appears on screen. And God got so definitive, so specific, he names Cyrus even before Cyrus was born. And notice what Isaiah said. This 8th century B.C. prophet describing this 538 B.C. decree. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. God is now speaking of Cyrus, this non-Semitic. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. And God has got a purpose to even use this man to return the Jews to Israel, just like he would use a Caesar Augustus in Newer Testament times to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, just like he would use a Herod and a Pilate to superintend the death of Christ only to three days later, according to the promises of the Old Testament, raise Jesus, you see, from the dead, who says of Cyrus. Do you see it up there? He's my shepherd. Let's go make it happen. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. In chapter 45, verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, of all people, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Drop down to verse 4 and check this one out. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. Now speaking of Cyrus, who was not yet born, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. That's your God. Now, when you see things happening globally and you're taken aback by the various stirrings, what you've got to bear in mind at this point, you see, is that God has a plan and God has a purpose. And what takes place globally at the same time has got to be assessed personally. That when there's an unsettledness and when there seems to be multiple stirrings occurring, how does my situation connect with, not isolated from, other such stirrings? What's God's purpose? What's God's plan? Check out verse 4. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, this is Cyrus now speaking, 
be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is where? In Jerusalem. Now, this is so significant, what I'm talking about here, what you and I are studying together here. And God wanted to so verify what's taking place here. You know what he did? Look what appears on the screen next. An archaeological find. And do you know what the archaeological find is? It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And what does the Cyrus Cylinder say? Let me quote from it. I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time. The images which used to live therein and establish for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May the gods, this is Cyrus speaking, whom I have resettled in their sacred cities, ask daily, Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord, may they say this, Cyrus, the king who worships you. You see, Cyrus was a polytheist. But God sovereignly placed in his soul, in his mind, the idea that this is the time of fulfillment, and the Israelites, the Jews, are now going to be returned to their promised land. That is your God, you see. And what God at this point is doing is that he is providing you and providing me with a real sense of the idea that he is the God who provides. Hey, have you ever watched Ken Burns' series on the Civil War? Have you noticed how many times the Civil War soldiers refer to God as providence rather than simply say God? This is found again and again and again in the various journals of soldiers during the Civil War time period. What's interesting is that the word providence is rooted in a Latin word. Pro, what takes place or is beforehand. And videra, we get video. In other words, to see. And what God is doing is that he not merely looks after our lives. He not only watches us. Get this. He watches over us. He knows what he knows. Absolutely. It was a Tuesday, my typical day off in New England, and a couple of former ball players who are now coaches at the high school level called me and wanted to know if I had any time that evening to go check out a baseball game. I thought it was Providence, you see. And so it was my day off, and so we headed off to Rhode Island. And before we got a chance to see the AAA Yankee team play the AAA Red Sox team, we stopped in the city of Providence. Now, whenever you're in Providence, you've got to make absolutely certain that for dessert you get a mug of coffee with a scoop of ice cream in it because that's what the people in Providence do. It's fantastic, I want you to know. 
But as we were making our way to Providence, I was thinking about Roger Williams. Roger Williams was born in 1603. Eventually, he became a pastor in, in that time period, in the 1600s, as people were arriving to populate what we now know as the U.S. And he had to leave Massachusetts. And after a brutal winter, Mark No, the historian, tells us, he finally arrived at the head of Narragansett Bay in April 1636, where he founded the city of Providence in honor of the power that had carried him through the winter, his sovereign God. Now, what we see here is that God is providentially working, where he is stirring even the heart of the unbelieving leader, where according to God's strategic plan, he is putting in motion strategy whereby the Jewish people will make their way back, back to rebuild Jerusalem. And this is in keeping with the promise of God. And so when you find there's stirrings happening in your life, or you're overwhelmed by the stirrings that are happening globally, You pray the promises like Daniel did in chapter 9, verse 2, back to God. And you see how the sovereign one here is at work. And there's a powerful sense of security when you and I acknowledge God's sovereignty. Now, there then, you and I have it. We've checked out verse 4. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And this sounds just like what the Egyptians did for the Israelites when they set in motion a plan to have the Israelites head back to the promised land decreed by God. Now, that's the first stirring. So when you're watching carefully what's happening globally or when you're processing what's happening personally, ask yourself, how does all this connect? Because here comes your second significant stirring and it flows naturally out of verse 5 down through verse 11. And we're going to put it like this, number 2, that through his word, God stirs up the remnant of his people to fulfill his promises. Not everybody will have their souls stirred. Sometimes you look around and you say, why aren't all Christians as engaged as I find my heart to be engaged? Well, the stirring was not for all Jews, interestingly enough. Check out verse 5. Then rose up the fathers' houses of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites. Look what comes next. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. This is going to have an impact. How will those who choose to leave view those who chose to stay? 
Maybe life got a little comfortable there in Babylon. Seventy years have gone by. We've established now a job situation. We've got some security, got our own house, our own neighborhood, natural relationships. All of a sudden now, Osiris appears on the scene, makes this edict, this decree, and now we are to return. I don't know about that. I kind of of like where I'm at. This is the sort of tension that had to be worked out among the people in the midst of not one stirring, the stirring of Cyrus's soul, but multiple stirrings, because it also included the hearts of those that God had sovereignly chosen to stir. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And you say, but Gary, how does all this fit together? Well, what God had done during the days of Abram, and you can check it out in Genesis, he had promised Abram's descendants this land. And God fulfills his promise. Do you remember that story in Genesis chapter 13 when Lot separated from Abram because Lot liked the lot that was out there? He saw some real estate, and he said to himself, that's where I want to go. What did God say then to Abram? Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring. Listen. Forever. That puts 1948 when Israel regained statehood status globally back into perspective. That puts the Middle East and their view of the Jews in the land of Israel back into perspective. And there would have come a time, interestingly enough, after God has declared Abram righteous, that God then would offer the covenant of the pieces. Say, come again. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, God had a sacrifice established where an animal was slain, divided in half, and the presence of God came through those two pieces. In other words, what God was saying, if I go back on my word, what this happened to this animal would happen to me. That's how true God is to his promise. And so in the midst of that significant covenant of the pieces regarding that land that you and I are now looking at, and Krauthammer is now pondering, when the sun had gone down in Genesis 15, listen carefully, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring... I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Ponder the Middle East today. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Canmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Termites. They're all there. And then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah 
And now they would have opportunity as they, with, the, with their children and their grandchildren, these fathers, as they're making their way back to this land to talk about the promise that I have just read to you, to Abram and his descendants, and talk about the fact that God keeps promises. And that the God who keeps promises globally is the God you can trust with the promise. Personally. In verse 6, all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods and beasts, with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Shades of the Exodus were just as the Egyptians equipped the Israelites to make their way to the promised land. So now we find the Babylonians and those Jews that chose to stay equipping these Jews to make their way back to the promised land, promised by God. And in verse 7, he steps into this story again, doesn't he? Cyrus. The king who brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem when you and I remember that story in Daniel where Belshazzar was toasting the false gods of Babylon with these very vessels that had come from the temple. God has the final word. And now Cyrus, who has conquered the Babylonians, now has these vessels being returned. Cyrus, the king who brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out. And how specific was he? Look this. He brought them to Mithridath, the treasurer. And now they do this analysis. Counted them out to Shezbazah, who could very well be one and the same as Zerubbabel, the prince of Judah. And notice the specifications, the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400 Everything is being documented. And what's interesting is that God preserved them. Even when it looked as though the Babylonians could have mingled them in or removed them, God preserved them. And that's your sovereign God. The God who keeps his promise. The God who orchestrates events the God who stirs people to do what it is that God wants them to do, and he does it in his purpose, according to his time, and all you see for his glory. He doesn't merely watch you. He watches over you. And meanwhile, these people are processing. They're thinking In his book, A History of the Jews in America, Howard Sachar describes an American Jew, a young man by the name of Adam. Even so, there is no equivocation in Adam Meyer's tone, 
none whatever in the boy's choice of words. Israel is my home, he replies. There I know where I am. And as he speaks, his father and grandfather listen thoughtfully, saying nothing. Providence. God preserves, God provides. And then the most powerful phrase found here in this first chapter appears at the end. When the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And God pulls all of that, you see, together. And so Charles Krauthammer, Dr. Krauthammer, is being interviewed, and he's asked this question. How do you understand what's happening? In the early days of the Obama administration, there was Egypt, and then there was Libya, and so on and so forth. And now we see in recent days even Turkey. And the brilliant Krauthammer responds, there is a global stirring that is taking place politically. And he pauses and then adds, and it has something to do with Israel. But may I add, it has everything to do with God. Let's stand together. You protect your people. You preserve archaeological finds. You preserve even the vessels that were being used to toast false gods. And you create a sense of a return. And we take all of this and we ponder the global significance of it all in these turbulent days. And we ponder where Israel fits into all of this. And then we think about how Pontius Pilate and Herod were used by you to not only superintend the death of Jesus Christ, but then beholders of three days later, you superintending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, what is happening globally or nationally or regionally or personally? When stirrings occur, we need to connect dots and understand the promise of God, to understand the plan of God, to understand the purpose of God, to understand God, who sent Jesus Christ into this world and in the fullness of time died for our sins. So we thank you for who you are and how you work, all for your glory and our good.
And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.